This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. But as we look back over this week, one of the big stories in London this week happened to be what to do with River Road. And the move that we may see River Road finally close. It's been three councils that have been dealing with our municipal golf courses. And we wanted to put some perspective in on this. And John Arlico has been nice enough to join us from Winnipeg, Manitoba, where they have been dealing with municipal golf course questions for a little while. John is a counselor in Winnipeg and is with us now. John, thanks for taking some time for us. My pleasure. Let's look at Winnipeg and the situation that you've dealt with because it seems like you're a few strides ahead of us in what seems to be a long-distance race for the city of Winnipeg. How many municipal courses have has Winnipeg uh, under their umbrella? Yeah, we have two types. We have the public ones that are run by the city, and then we have some leased ones. We have about 12 uh, golf courses. 12 courses. Okay. And obviously, discussions come up. What do we do? Can we continue to make these courses work? What has been happening in Winnipeg? Well, there's been actually, uh, since uh, we did this in 2019, it was kind of looking at that city. Winnipeg is growing quite quickly. Uh, so the issue of actually uh, green space came up and, and some infill development, where we're going to put that. Uh, we have more people needing to use green space for other purposes other than golf. Um, and we also need to do some climate change resiliency stuff with uh, forest. Uh, so what, it was time to take a look at golf courses and look at what can we do with uh, repurposing some of them. Um, uh, and, you know, we're looking at about a 30% ratio uh, to as a first blush uh, to see uh, if there are other purposes other than golf. And when you talk about other purposes, and this is something that obviously we're talking about in London too, if you're not going to have it as a golf course, what else could it be? What have you come up with? Well, we're in that process now. Like we're identifying the land. Some of it just depends on the type of land they're looking at and the profitability of some of the golf courses versus others. Uh, but we're looking at things like uh, forest. Um, that, that, that's uh, part of the Million Tree Challenge, uh, where we're going to put all these new trees. Uh, so that's one area. We're also looking at uh, doing, uh, you know, maybe third-party leases for uh, farmers markets or for soccer fields. Um, doing a little bit of that, um, and some of them, some of them are that run along the rivers may just become uh, walking trails or dog parks. Um, and then some of the clubhouse areas we can envision where there's concrete already, maybe a little infill in there to help pay for the other stuff. So, you know, we've got everything's on the table, but we're generally looking at repurposing to green space, uh, a little, maybe a little infill, but that's more of the secondary thing. And you're looking at about 30% of them? 30% of the land. So it could be, you know, taking an 18-hole course and making it 12. could be merging two courses together that are close in the proximity. Uh, so there's, uh, so we look, we, we didn't say a course, we said 30% of the golf course lands. Right. We're talking with Winnipeg City Councilor John Orlico. John, has there been any thought, consideration, or attempt to sell a course? Well, we actually have a John Bloomberg course, it's called, and we're in the process of working with a municipality outside of Winnipeg uh, to uh, do a joint venture on selling that one. Um, how that hard is odd. it to... Sorry, how hard is it to sell a golf course? It doesn't seem like uh, it might be as easy as, say, selling some old books you have in the basement. Well, it is very hard, actually. This is not our first, you know, first 
tried this. We learned from our first attempt where the first attempt, the public really holds strong to these green spaces and, and to golf itself. So if you're going to do anything, you have to make sure it's very upfront and honest. Um, you can't be sending out RFPs to developers before the community's had a chance to weigh on on alternative ideas. Uh, you have to make sure that it's, you know, we understand golfing actually doesn't lose us money uh, overall in the city of Winnipeg. Uh, we kind of break even with it, and it is a recreational activity. The question is just, do we need this much? Uh, can we use the lands for other purposes? And that's really a community conversation you have to have first. Sure. And as a final question, in London, we seem to look at golf courses, and, and we want them to be kind of standalone entities so that they pay for themselves. How does that work in Winnipeg? You mentioned that golf you know, doesn't lose you money, but are these essentially standalone entities? They look after their own bottom line. Yeah, we got we got them all wrapped up. They call it a special operating agencies, so they're kind of separate from the city of Winnipeg budget, and what that's a point uh, to at least break even, if not generate a little bit of revenue. Um, so, you know, there's a debate in Winnipeg about is that so or not. I believe it is so. Um, there's this old agreement where we take a hundred year old clubhouse and make the the SOA pay it back which I thought was ridiculous back in the day. So, but generally on our books, uh, golf courses break even. Okay. Well, John, we really appreciate all of the information because it's yeah, it's luck. one thing to try and figure out what's going on where we are, but it's always good to get some other perspective, and you have done that for us beautifully. I know you've got to run to a meeting. Thanks so much for taking some time for us, and please keep safe. Excellent. You too. Take care. That's John Orlico, Winnipeg City Councilor. So golf does not lose them money in Winnipeg, but even then, when you consider they have 12 municipal courses, now he said there are two types, but 12 municipal courses, do you need that many? How much? And that's an interesting way to look at it, not getting rid of courses, but looking at percentages. And you have to wonder, I'm convinced that golf will head in this direction at some point. We're already seeing it. And maybe it's just because I can't do 18. I can't, I can't play 18. I'm a 12-hole guy. If I hit 12 holes, eh, I'm about done. Yeah, I've, I've been walking in the sunshine long enough. I've been hitting bad shots long enough. I'm done. And so as John points out, you get the holes that are 18, sure, but you also get the ones that are 12 holes or 14 holes or whatever they want to make it, that condensed version of golf. And where do we go in that way? Now, we're not dealing with 12 courses in London. We're not going to say, okay, let's let's reduce all of them to you know a percentage. No, right now it is River Road that would become something else, and then that would leave the city with twos. Some perspective from Winnipeg. Picture a little something right now. Just Let's take a minute, because it'll bring up a good memory. I guarantee it. It's Friday. There is no pandemic. We've never heard of a thing except when Dustin Hoffman and other people were on screen in movies like Outbreak. But you would think, it's not a thing. It's not going to happen. So it's Friday, and you have Friday night. And you know that you are going to go downtown, and you know that this band is playing, and you've been waiting to see them, and your friends have been telling you they're they're outstanding. They're you got to see this band. This is amazing. These these guys they're gonna go. That's and we get to see them here. 
That has happened how many times? And what does that do? That, that brings that Friday excitement. We're missing that. It's Friday, but what are you doing on Friday night? I don't know. I'm probably just sit around and uh, not do uh, not do too much, you know. Uh, probably just sit uh, on the couch, maybe uh, watch a show. That's about it. So that's our Friday nights now. When we could go out in the summer, when live music would play from patios, when we would have events like Rock the Park, and we'd have all kinds of artists coming through. Budweiser Gardens bursting with whoever happened to be coming in. You drive by and there's big 18-wheelers being unloaded. All of that's coming back. But think about that right now. That's a good feeling, right? Well, how are we going to get that back? Because the music industry has been hit really hard by this pandemic. Artists have seen the music landscape change as it is. But now, when you can't perform live, when you can't do what you love to do... That's tough, and it's tough to make money. An idea has been presented, and we want to go through that idea right now. It has been created by Corey Crossman, Music Industry Development Officer, Culture, Special Event, and Sport Division in the City of London, and it is aimed at reviving live music and live music venues right here in London, Ontario. Oh, do we need to know more about this? Corey joins us right now. Corey, how are things? Good, Mike. How are you doing? I'm missing live music. I really, I, oh, my I wife and I were talking that. about this this week. We just love to go and sit and listen. Let's rewind to back when only the Dustin Hoffman movies and some weird books that were <laughs> written talked about pandemics. How were we doing in London? I mean, what were we looking at in terms of, say, annual events in London that had to do with live music? Yeah, we're looking at over 4,700 events uh, annually in London, and we were seeing that number grow over the past couple of years. And so, you know, we're at a real high point. You know, 2019 just coming off off the Junos. You know, looking into 2020, like, hey, you know, we got this. It's going to be a great year. Um, and then, you know, the whole world shut down. Um, but we're turning, flipping the, the switch here, and we're under the Ontario Reopening Act, you know, we're able to revive live. And so we're excited to announce a, a great partnership uh, and start presenting live music safely uh, over live streams. So we've got, you know, Tourism London, London Arts Council, London Economic Development Corp, Downtown London, Old East Village, all working together uh, to get live music happening again uh, safely. This is good. So let's even go back. You said over 4,700 live events and growing. And we're yeah. talking about just this area, right? That's not Ontario? 4,700? No, yeah, and that's London. That's based on, you know, self-reported numbers that the venues, uh, shows they're putting on themselves. So, we, you know, you got uh, venues doing matinee shows, um, evening shows, weekend shows. There really is a lot happening, you know, and there's almost 1,000 people that are working in the uh, live event sector and supporting it in, in London. Uh, so it's it's a big sector. There's a lot of people working in it. You know, there's the for-profit, there's the not-for-profit. Like you mentioned earlier, the great festivals that we have. Uh, you know, we've got amazing music schools, you know, over a thousand students at the post-secondary schools breaking into the industry. So London's a hotbed for talent, and uh, it's a big step, you know, uh, sort of reopening and doing it safely. Corey Crossman joining us, Music Industry Development Officer with the City of London as we talk about reviving live music. And we'll get to some of those details as to when you can see that live music, because it's coming soon. I mean, we're talking about uh, a little over a week. We'll be talking about Texas King and Serena Haggerty. So we'll discuss that in just a moment. But 
in terms of reviving, kickstarting, we know that the music industry has been hard hit. How do we go about fixing that? I mean, are we going to lose people who say, "I just can't, I can't pursue the dream anymore," or is it still, is it still, you know, time where we might be able to say, "Hey, we can do this now. If you've made it this far, let's let's keep it going." Yeah, and that, that's a good point, right? We're almost a year into this. You know, live music uh, in the entertainment industry has been one of the hardest hit. Uh, you know, shut down from day one and one of the last sectors to open. Uh, so initiatives like this, you know, supporting our local artists, supporting our local venues, and, and that's what this is about. You know, the, the first phase of this is is the live stream stuff because we can we can do that now. Um, you know, we're working with some great venues. We have London Music Hall, 765 Old East, Richmond Tavern, Eastside Barn Grill, Palisade Social Bowl. Uh, so that's the first five venues we have. You know, we've got 10 local artists that are involved. We have, um, you know, a lot of momentum happening right now. And uh, it's important to sort of, you know, engage and support the, the local sector when we can. And this is this is the way that we can do it safely, right? And we can work towards helping them reopen. And uh, the music office has been working with, with our venues on a project called Reopening Every Venue Safely, or REVS. I think it's a little cleaner name when you say REVS and sort of rev up the music sector. And we're, we're working towards getting... Um, you know, everybody back uh, working, you know, and that's a key part. Uh, if we can get the industry working, showing support for those people behind the scenes that make that make this happen, then, you know, we can start having fun again. Uh, and I think we all need that. You know, we need uh, we need it for, for our mental health uh, right now is that uh, live music is just such an outlet. Like you alluded to earlier, you know, you wait all week to go see that band and see that show and just you think of that excitement. Like, I uh, can't wait to get back to that point. Well, you're going to give us a little sample of that February 27th. So yep. we're talking about eight days from now. So next Saturday, am I am I counting my calendar dates right? That's right. Yeah, next Saturday. So over the next five uh, Saturdays, so starting February 27th, um, there's live music. We're going to have live events streaming. Uh, LondonMusicOffice.com slash Revive Live. You can find all the links there. Uh, and that's exactly what it's going to be. It's going to be local artists playing at local venues. Um, it, it's going to be powerful. Like I can't wait. So Texas King and Serena Haggerty kick it off and maybe just maybe, you know, we keep this going and at some point we can all go and and join in. But Texas King and Serena Haggerty, they both have such great connections to London. What was it like to bring them on board? It was, you know, it was a natural kind of thing. You know, we, we left the uh, the venues to, to bring forth their ideas on, on the artists they wanted to represent and, you know, uh, putting Texas King front and center for this at London Music Hall, it, it just felt right. It made a lot of sense. And, um, you know, we're still looking for venues that are interested in participating in this. So there's options for venues and artists to, to get involved. And I said, this is phase one. Um, so it was great to kick it off with, you know, a, a notable act like Texas King, you know, that, that had such a big year in, in 2019. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're thrilled. You know, it, it really is. Uh, we were hoping to get this launched earlier, um, but, you know, it's it's just been <laughs> uncertain times right so we're happy to get this off the ground and uh we got a runway uh, ahead of us here and we got some great events in the next couple of weeks Corey crossman joining us music industry development officer culture special event and sport division with the city of london as we talk about reviving live music and live music venues in london Corey, you talk about venues and artists and if they wanted to get involved we'll spread this word as far and wide as we can using our resources so if we happen to hit a venue or an artist let's start with venues what can they do to be a part of this 
So we're asking for venues to submit an expression of interest, you know, noting that they are interested. And, you know, we recognize that not everybody's uh, able to pick up and and participate at this time, but uh, we we will ask them to fill out that expression of interest as well as, uh, you know, artists are able to submit uh, like an electronic press kit and uh, to be considered by these venues. So it sort of, you know, it really comes back to heading to londonmusicoffice.com slash revive live. You see all the partners that are involved in, you get a sense of just, you know, how much support there is uh, moving forward and how important this is. You know, it's it, the revitalization of, uh, you know, of, of the world, I think, is going to really fall on on culture. People are going to look to culture and we're going to see culture take a really positive step forward and, and center stage. Uh, so this is a, a key piece of it with Revive Live. And again, it's at londonmusicoffice.com slash Revive Live. There's that line of how can I miss you if you won't go away? And boy, there are a lot of things that have gone away and a lot of things that we've missed. We're not going to take stuff like this for granted anymore, I hope, right? You know, and that's that's uh, absolutely it. You know, talking with colleagues in, in other parts of the world and, you know, Auckland, it's incredible to see the work that's happened in New Zealand. And they talk about how strong their local music sector is, um, you know, has, has come out of this after lockdown. So, I, I really feel like people are going to be excited to go to this. You know, it's important that we're doing this safely and that everyone's uh, on board and supporting the local sector. So I think it's, it's, it's there's some light at the end of the tunnel here on a Friday. You've been able to talk with places like that in New Zealand where things are a little bit more normal. You mentioned that, you know, that's that the artists are, are back performing and, and things do feel a little bit more normal. What exactly is happening there? Yeah, I mean, there. I can't speak a great deal about it, but they're. Um, I mean, they obviously have lower cases there, but what people are seeing is there's a real energy around their local industry because there isn't, um, you know, it, it's just New Zealanders that are playing there. So the idea is people are going out to see the local artists, their local venues, are supporting their local community. The whole ecology of the music sector is up and running, and and, and it's working. Uh, and people are just you know, thrilled to have that again in their lives. Uh, you know, again, like off the top, you were talking about, you know, just that energy and that feel of going out, you know, on a Friday or Saturday to see a band. And uh, people miss that. People miss that. People need that. You know, connecting with their friends. And, you know, music is a universal language that breaks down every barrier and it connects people, right, and makes these lifelong memories. So we're looking forward to making more memories with Revive Live. Amazing. Well, it is a phenomenal idea. Again, it begins next Saturday and then follows every subsequent Saturday through to March 27th at this point, and then we'll see what happens after that. If someone wanted to watch Texas King and Serena Haggerty, where do they find that? Yeah, so that's again at uh, LondonMusicOffice.com slash Revive Live, uh, and we've got links up there. You can find all the information. Um, it, it's all right there for you. Corey, great stuff. Congratulations on getting this off the ground. Can't wait to see it start and find out where it goes. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. And like I said, it's you know we got great partners, Tourism London, the Arts Council, London Economic Development Corp, Downtown London, Old East Village. It just shows that you know culture is at the center of this and driving us forward, and it's going to be a critical step. So thanks. Love it. Keep safe. Take care. You as well. That is Corey Crossman. Doesn't it feel good just to hear about that kind of stuff? You know, there's a real shot for something. There really is. We've missed a whole lot. And how many times have you gone out somewhere and you've had a good time because there have been people around? You know, you can go out somewhere and you know you might be the only two, four, however many people you bring along in the place. 
and that atmosphere is not the same. We will see people hopefully flood two spots. You know, you can't necessarily know exactly how everything is going to go, how much disposable income are some people going to have, what will happen to the economy. We don't know the answers to those questions. But there's a chance that, yeah, Friday night is not for sitting at home anymore. We did that. We did that for more than a year. We sat at home on Friday. We sat at home on Saturday. Friday and Saturday are not for sitting at home. Friday and Saturday are for going out and living. That's where we could get. And if that happens, you think about the live venues and and, and how much people are going to clamor to get back there because that atmosphere will be there because we all make this kind of silent pact of Friday and Saturday, it's not for sitting at home anymore. And out we go. Or whether it is live sports or whatever, walking down the street. Things that we used to take for granted. Yeah, you feel like going out tonight? I don't know. A little tired. It's been kind of a, I wouldn't mind sitting on the couch. for. That won't happen. We'll have done that enough. And it'll be about making some changes and getting involved in that culture and, and appreciating local music and local musicians and people who are so good at what they do, maybe they don't have the platinum-selling album, but they're still out there and they're still they're still giving it every Friday and Saturday or Friday and Saturday and Sunday. And you sit back and you, you just enjoy the atmosphere. You just enjoy being with people. Yeah. That's what we're shooting for. That's why we're staying home. Right there. That's why we're staying home. But we do want to talk about something that became a real discussion locally. And it's an interesting thing if you are, let's say, an alumnus of Western University or if you've lived in London for a long time because it involves Western University and... Huron University College. For many, many years, Huron University College was Huron College. And then they gained that university status. And now there is some talk about handing out degrees from Huron University College that don't have a connection to Western University. Joining us right now is the president of Huron University College, Barry Craig. And it is great, Barry, to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Nice to talk to you, uh, Mike, as well. Uh, real enjoyable. The weather's starting to take a turn for the positive, so uh, great to chat. Didn't it feel, if you were outside today, even heading to a car or just outside for a second, didn't it feel like spring, or was that just me? No, no, not, not just you. I'm an optimist by nature. I think we've turned the corner, man. Well, I hope so. And whispering does bring change. Let's talk about the discussion of change at Huron University College. This is a relationship between Huron and Western that has existed for well over 100 years, I think 100 and a half. So what is the discussion? Yeah, and I I honestly want to preserve uh, that great relationship we have with Western. I mean, Huron was founded in 1863, and then a bunch of Huron folks uh, – created Western 15 years later. And since then, we've had a, a, a really good relationship, and I think we can continue to have one. We have, we are an independent, autonomous institution in law, have always been. 
joined by a mutually agreed upon affiliation agreement, one that's also signed by Brescia and Kings. And so I want to continue everything that we perceive as good in that affiliation with Western, uh, good neighbors, share resources and opportunities and so on. Students take classes back and forth. But I'd like a bit more autonomy over academic affairs and like to be able uh, to grant a Huron degree and be able to control the content of those degrees. Interesting. Okay. And what do you feel that will do? Well, look, I think we're in a pretty dynamic era, to tell you the truth, with post-secondary. I think we're seeing a lot of changes across the country, and honestly, I think there are a lot more to come. Uh, Shifting student interests and different programs, uh, shifting demographics. You've seen the move for universities to recruit a lot more international students. Uh, There's been a change underway for the last four decades in funding, whereby at one point, uh, public grants paid up to 80-85% of the cost of running a university, and now, in many cases, it's down well below 50%. And that burden has been shifted over to tuition-paying students. And so with all of these changes going on, uh, I think it's smart to look down the road and say, how do you position yourself to be responsive to whatever changes might be out there? And for us, because we're small, I think the key is to make sure we can take advantage of the nimbleness that should come with size. So if we can have a good relationship with Western, and still live together as great neighbors and community, and like I say, share resources, allow students to have the best of both worlds, but be able to respond quickly to a change of marketplace. That's what I want to be able to do. Barry Craig joining us, president of Huron University College. The competition for post-secondary. Barry, let's touch on that for just a moment because students are either waiting for acceptances or mulling over acceptances heading toward next year. What do you make of the competitive landscape of attracting students? What's that like? Yeah, and, you know, Mike, that's one of the big changes, really. Uh, As they say, 30, 40 years ago, when most of the bill was being paid by a public grant, it didn't matter as much. But now, when most of your revenue comes from tuition, it's a far more competitive environment than ever before. And so uh, we're down to about 20% of our uh, budget or less comes from uh, the provincial government, and the rest is tuition. So... uh, you have changing demographics, a smaller number of high school graduates, uh, you know, we're well past the double cohort and all of those changes, declining birth rates. And so a smaller group of students for the same number of universities. And so we've been successful the last two or three years, four or five really, at showing the value of a small community, small class sizes and, and so on. As a result, we've had an increase of 83% in our enrollment in the past three years and a 400% increase in international students. So we think we've got something cool there, something really distinctive in that message about the small community. And if we can continue that with a good relationship to this very well-established, prestigious research university across the street, I think we get a magic formula. Well, it is certainly ambitious, and hey, we've had in this pandemic, why are we doing things the way we're doing it? That's a question everybody's looked at, and if the answer is, well, it's the way we've always done it, maybe it's time to kind of look around and say, well, maybe there's another way of doing this. So what does this take to create? Well, a heck of a lot of work and endless discussions and so on, and that's all good and proper. So we've got to talk to everybody internally our students, our staff, our faculty, our alumni. Uh, We have to talk to Western and hopefully begin really good faith negotiations on what a transformed affiliation agreement would look like. And then there's a process of applying to government. And I understand that's a four to six month process too. And so first stage, really comprehensive uh, consultations to explain what we're thinking of. 
and listen to objections, see if there's anything we've overlooked in terms of risk variance in this, begin conversations with Western, and, you know, there's been no promises made coming into that as to what that would look like. And then if our Board of Governors approves this, and, and they get to approve it, we've only made the proposal, then we begin the uh, application to provincial government for degree granting status. Well, Barry, thank you for taking us through the process and what would be the end result in all of this. Again, love the idea of somebody examining something and saying, yeah, we've, we've done it this way, but maybe it's time to do it another way. Thanks for the time. Enjoy, hopefully, that hint of spring that we can have in the air for the next little while, even if we are getting a little more snow, and keep safe. Thanks a lot, Mike. Come visit us on campus sometime. We'll do that for sure. That is Barry Craig, president of Huron University College. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.